Welcome to the Sailing Into Oblivion podcast. I'm your host, Jerome Rand. Good morning, everyone out there on the highways and the byways. If you're commuting into work this morning and you're listening to my voice, I salute you. It's pretty cool. I have the benefit of living where I work and work where I live in the boatyard, which has its ups and downs. Yesterday was quite a day, very, very long, very hard day, lots of running around getting bricks and blocks and stands and trying to pull all these boats out as best as we can. And it was amazing to see how how long it took to wash the filth <clears throat> from my body. Last night in the shower, I was completely exhausted and I actually sat down to do a podcast. But for whatever reason, the microphone was picking up some sort of static every once in a while and it really... Uh, angered me at the end because it was a very interesting podcast. As tired and as exhausted as I was, there was a seemingly an electric charge in the air. And the story that I told was that of how I found Mighty Sparrow and the ins and outs of everything with that. And it was a response to a listener's email. A person named Jamie had wanted to know some details about what it was, what the story was going into Finding Mighty Sparrow. And so I told that, and it was it was very fun. I couldn't believe an hour had gone by so quickly. And I don't know, somehow, once I published everything, I listened to a little bit of it and then realized that I couldn't publish it at all because it had this glitch that was annoying and it kept sparking and sparking and sparking and... Just one of those things, I guess. Maybe it's time for a new microphone. I'm not sure, but we'll have to see about that. In any event, I did want to say a big thanks to our growing Patreon family. We had two more members, and I'm going to give them a quick shout-out right now. We had Sarah, and then we have Tim. And Tim was actually responsible for the last... Uh, podcast that we did about the BVI. He had tons of questions because he's the one going down to charter and now he's part of the crew. Ah, it feels so good to have that Patreon family grow. I do enjoy the size and scale of it right now because I feel like it's very manageable. It's not one of those things where I can't handle all the emails and doing a normal job and all the other things that I'm trying to do with Sparrow. So it Kind of is nice, although I do, a part of me would like it to keep growing more and more and more. But when I look at the numbers of some of these other podcasts, I can't even fathom that there's any way that all of the messages and all of the emails can easily be answered. But I've always told Sven that if we ever made it big, he'd be my first call. He'd be my Jamie, so to speak. And um, who knows, maybe that is in the future. I'm going to keep doing these podcasts and uh, because I enjoy them first and foremost, but also it does seem like it has the capability, the possibility, the future could hold something that I could actually turn this into my main job. And then maybe I would even be able to hit the road, do a little traveling, find the people that I like to interview. And it is funny, the 
the the people that I try to sit down with are the people that don't want to sit down. <laughs> and I understand the podcast can be a bit scary, especially if you've never done one. I remember my first, and I was very nervous. But now, after doing so many, it just seems like second nature at this point. But trying to convince that of someone is a little tricky. I attune it to... The greatest politician is usually the one who doesn't want the job, doesn't want to do the job, but that's the person who should be doing the job. Well, with these podcasts, I find that the people who want to do the podcast usually have something they're trying to either sell or promote, and the people who don't are usually shy but have these stories and these experiences that when we get them to share with everybody, it is absolutely amazing, and that's, I suppose, my niche. I suppose that's the thing that I'm trying to go for when I do this podcast, is be a little different. Don't we all want to be just a little different, maybe special? Hmm? Yeah. So, we'll have to just see how it keeps going, but with the growing Patreon group, I do have to say that that is huge, huge when it comes to motivation for me and energy for me and forging forth, trying not to be put down by people who don't want to sit down on the podcast and tell me about their adventures. I'll keep pestering, I will keep prodding, and I will keep poking people to get on here and sit down with me so we can break it up. I'm very lucky, though, it seems from emails and comments and responses that I get. Uh, people enjoy the ramblings of Jerome just as much as they enjoy the conversations with other people and Jerome. So that's a, a big bonus for me because it lays a little pressure off. If I can't find someone right away, then I can just hop on board and turn the microphone on and talk about my day or my work or some of the past stories with Mighty Sparrow. And so, big shout out to my new Patreon and my already current Patreon family. You guys are the reason, guys and gals, you are the reason why this podcast is still on and most importantly still ad-free at this time. And I really, really enjoy that. It feels pure and it feels un uh, corrupted by, by anything, and uh, it actually feels like more of a team effort, <clears throat> which I think is very important because when I think about my job here in Maine, I also realize that it's the team that actually makes the job fun. It's not the job. No matter how good the exercise might be of moving large blocks and large triangles of metal, um, it's not as fun as being able to chat and scream and yell at Dave and all the rest of the guys and uh, sort of clown around at work. And that's what really matters is that the time spent working, you do make some money, that's for sure. But the real value in it is that you're spending your time in a good, quality, happy way and you enjoy what you're doing. And though I may not enjoy 100% what I'm doing all the time, I am, in fact, enjoying the time spent with the people I am doing it with. And we had a pretty funny gam the other day as we were trying to figure out <clears throat> if we could possibly move Mighty Sparrow into a closer proximity to the Wi-Fi for live streams and things like that. And uh, it just ended up with a big cackle from my cohorts and basically them pointing and laughing at me and then saying that they're not even going to launch my boat because they want me to stick around, which is a bit of a 
left-handed shake uh, or a left-handed compliment in some ways. Uh, but my answer to the the Wi-Fi question was basically overcast by laughing and pointing at your yours truly here, but that's okay. I know it was all in good fun. And, hey, you know, if they really are wanting me to stay forever and ever, that's a good sign. It means I'm doing my job well. But I digress. I get off into the weeds so easily. Today we want to talk about the story of how I procured Mighty Sparrow. And there were a few different parts of this email, but I feel like each one could be a section of a podcast or an entire podcast of its own. And the big the big question really was, you know, can you tell us more about finding Mighty Sparrow and what you went through to get the boat? And then also the modifications that were undertaken to get the boat ready for the trip around the world. Now, a quick note on the latter half, and that really is that I was going in the dark. I didn't really have too much of a guide as far as what I felt like would be strong enough or worthy enough to head and sail into an area like the Southern Ocean. So it was a bit of guesswork. I can only look back and say what I think worked and what I think did not work. But we'll get into some of that stuff, I think, at a later date. The modifications and the improvements, quote-unquote, that were done to Mighty Sparrow before the big trip. <clears throat> but this morning we're just going to tell a little bit of a story. And I will try to get a little animated, if I possibly can, but I am a little worried about this microphone. So... I'll hopefully not have any glitches going on or anything like that. But again, our story really truly begins in 2012 at the end of the Appalachian Trail. And having walked down Mount Katahdin and towards the parking lot, leaving this trail that I had been on for 133 days, it was in my mind that if I could do that, what was next? And I knew exactly what was next. It was always in the back of my head, this idea, this notion of sailing alone around the world without stopping. But up until that point, it always just seemed like one of those dreams, one of those wishes that you thought maybe you'd love to do one day, but you never ever really considered the possibility of doing it, going forward and saying, okay. Well, at this point, I felt very adventurous, obviously. The only problem was I had a beard, I had a dirty backpack, and I had the clothes on my back. I had no money and I had no job. And to be able to go and then try to plan something so grand as sailing around the world alone in your own boat when you don't even have a boat is pretty unrealistic, I think, as far as thinking goes. But hey, you know, that's what plans are made for. So I started thinking and I started planning. And I went back to Michigan and I lived at my parents' house. I was actually tented out in the backyard, so to speak. It's a little bit of a forest up there. And cut to now, actually, uh, this past month, that's exactly what I was still doing. So I suppose things haven't really changed too much for your old pal Jay Rome here. Uh, but in any event, I had a quick little bit of work because I knew I'm going to need to save as much money as possible. And in my mind, I thought three or four years and I might be able to save and acquire enough loot, if you will, to purchase this boat 
and I had no boat in mind, but the only thing I really was doing was <clears throat> perusing the internet, the Yacht World site, and a few others, looking at all the boats that were available, and looking mostly at West Sales because I had it in my head after watching The Perfect Storm and finding out that that was, in fact, a West Sail that survived on its own without any captain or crew, and... So it was in my head, and I liked the fact that it was an American-made boat. It felt natural that way. After the summer, I was able to procure another job back down in the Caribbean where I had worked before, which gave me the advantage of living where I work and working where I live, just as I do right now. And it allowed me the chance to save and save and save. Plus, it was a job that offered... Not only an income from the company, but also from the effort. And that was rewarded in tips and things like that. So charge, charming, being charming, going above and beyond all of the hoopla that you try to do in the service industry can be quite rewarding if you are willing to do it day in, day out, <clears throat> and not just go spend it all on a few beers and a pizza afterwards. Mm. This coffee is excellent, by the way. And then on to the rest of that three-year stint down there. I pretty much was relegated to working, 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 but then perusing, 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 and looking at all these boats. And I knew that once I got off for the summer break, if you will, normally we ended in the beginning of August for a good six weeks, and I had signed on to come back for two months after that stint. So I essentially had one and a half months to go and look at all these boats, find one, purchase one, and then come back after my little stint and start the whole process. Now, in my mind, again, I had three years to work and do all that. And then I needed at least one year to test the boat, sail the boat, break the boat, fix the boat. And then it would be off and on to the actual trip around the world. And uh, I found a lot of boats. They were not too expensive. The West sales were good in that fact that you could usually see them priced between $20,000 and fifty dollars or $60,000, depending on how complete the boat was and what sort of shape it was in. But I had to relegate things down into at least one sort of road trip. And so I started to plot and plan for when I got back to Michigan. And <clears throat> I remember asking my mom if she wanted to go, and she was like, yes, that sounds like a great idea, a little mother-son trip out on the road. And it was kind of an interesting aspect because there was no person that did detested this idea of me sailing around the world like my mother did. Obvious reasons, you know, safety of her child. She didn't want anything bad to happen to me, and the chances were pretty likely that that could actually happen being that I'd be sailing in the Southern Ocean alone on a 40- or 50-year-old boat. I mean, it's obvious. There are problems there. The thinking doesn't quite compute, <clears throat> except for the adventurer, who sometimes doesn't think at all, I suppose. Now, cut to the road trip, and we had seen one boat up in Michigan, and then the rest were all in Ohio, and then out on the East Coast. And the vast majority were West Sails, but we looked at a few Babas and some Irwins and Mostly, I was ill-impressed by what I saw. Many of the boats were very customized by their owners over the years and dingy and 
dirty. Some had not been opened for months, and some had brokers, and some were just the owners. And it was an interesting process. I had never done this before. I'd never actually gone and looked for a boat of my own uh, outside of a 13-foot Boston whaler. This was definitely uncharted territory for me. But the team of mother and son were not to be determined or deterred in any way, and we made it all the way out to the East Coast, where we found one boat that seemed almost suitable. Now, the only issue with this boat is it was a baba, and it was very fancy, and it was put together very, very well. Almost too well, because the price tag reflected exactly how much love and care the owner had actually put into it. But it was also a little bit smaller, and the layout down below wasn't exactly what I was looking for either. I felt like this is a boat that I would probably destroy. It seemed quite strong, but not exactly West Sail strong. And then, finally, we came to one of the last West Sails that I was going to look at, and this one actually fit the bill pretty well. The price tag wasn't too bad, somewhere around $36,000. I knew I'd probably be able to chip away at that quite a bit. But I did look at the list of things that it came with, and it was bare bones. There wasn't a wind vane. There wasn't a life raft. There wasn't this. There wasn't that. There were no electronics. There was pretty much a minimal amount of anything that I knew that I would have to add to the price tag that really added up to almost $10,000. No EPIRB, no nothing. But we went ahead because it was the last one and it seemed to be in the best of shape. Did have non-skid decks instead of teak, so that cut down on the work that would need to be done, as I planned on definitely having that. But the boat looked good, although it had been sitting for a long time, and it was your typical west sail, down below, teak everywhere, covering just about every surface of the wall and the ceiling. And so it was dark, and very, very dark, and almost dingy, but not quite. Because it had a broker, they had at least cleaned the boat out. And after poking ahead around in this boat and looking around, you know, I'm no expert. This is all new to me. I don't have a little tiny hammer. I'm not tapping on things. I don't even know what rotted wood looks like, but it definitely looked okay. And so we went ahead and went through the process a little bit, which I was a little taken aback when I was asked to put down a deposit for even making an offer. But I suppose that's how sometimes these things go. They got to keep out the riffraff, if you will. And so I put down this little bit of money with a, a money order sent directly. And then we put in an offer for about $30,000. And then we got a counter offer. And then I put out another offer. And then we got another counter offer. And finally, the broker called me directly saying that, hey, we could go on like this for a long time. But we could just cut to the chase and agree on something right here. And when that came in and I looked at my notepad and I added up some of the other things, I realized that I was creeping closer and closer to $50,000, which was way too much. I could not afford that type of boat. And knowing all the rest of the work that needed to go into it, new sales, things like that, it just was off the list. So head a little pointed towards the navel, I headed home and we basically kept searching on the internet that went back to the old standard of let's see what else what new things come up and my hope was a little bit dashed at this point i thought for sure that road trip was going to 
end up with me being a proper boat owner and then head down to the BVI knowing that I had buttoned everything up, but that did not happen at that point. Now, cut to just a few days later, perusing the internet, and I can see it now. I can actually imagine, and I remember that picture popping up, and it was newly released, a brand new West Sail 32 that was already used, obviously, but brand new to the internet and brand new to being for sale. It was a little bit on the pricey side, but it was gorgeous. A nice, almost oyster white with a blue boot stripe and a blue waterline stripe and a dark red bottom. No mast on it, surrounded by pine trees. It was absolutely gorgeous. It caught my eye immediately. So scrolling through the buttons, looking for the interior pictures, I see that it is very different than other West Sales. Instead of teak everywhere, it just had teak trim, and it had white walls and a white ceiling, and my goodness, it was bright, and they didn't have any lights turned on down below because they didn't need them. I thought, if anything, we needed curtains. Oh my goodness, this would be great. This looks like a fantastic boat, and I scrolled through, and I examined every single picture down to the pixel. And it was really, really fun. And so the very next day I emailed and I emailed my own little quote. I thought, well, I'm dealing with just the owner. I might as well cut to the chase. And I said, well, would you take $40,000 for it? That's pretty much all I have. And I didn't hear anything the next day. And then the following day I received a reply and it said, well, hey, I'll tell you what I'll do. If you can pay for the trucking of the boat from my backyard to the boatyard, which should cost around $500, then we've got a deal. I'll even pay for the launching of the boat and stepping of the mast. So we were bartering. It felt great. I was excited. I couldn't believe it. So I did have one last requirement, and that was of myself, and that was to actually go and see the boat. I never wanted to be the person who bought a boat sight unseen. I don't think that's wise, and no one should ever do it. But I've heard horror stories, people who do, and the problems that come with that. And so I planned a trip before heading down to the BVI in early October. I would do a pit stop for only a matter of hours down in Florida where the boat lie in Jupiter and meet up with the owner, go to their house, check out the boat, look at it, see what we were doing. And then if it all seemed good and well, then I would sign the papers not pay any money, but sign the papers, a contract, an agreement, if you will, and then head off to the BVI to finish my stint and then deliver a check before Thanksgiving of 2016. Now, a quick note before I get into this part of the story. I usually strive my my every ounce of being to be as positive as possible and not be as negative as uh, as sometimes we will find ourselves being. And my telling of this story isn't meant to shed any sort of negative light on the previous owner of this boat, but I do get carried away. I'm going to try my best just to relay the facts to everybody because that's what people want to know and that's what I want to tell them. And uh, if it does seem like the owner was a little unreasonable here or there. I want it to be known that separation anxiety from a boat that you have worked on for nearly 12 years 
is a very real thing, and I understand it 100%, so I'm not trying to be mean, but I am trying to relay the facts of what it was like to actually purchase a boat from someone who had owned and loved and worked on said boat for over a decade. So, that being said, I arrived at the train station, standing there in the heat of the the August, or sorry, the October air of Florida, and up pulled a pickup truck with an older gentleman in it with a big smile on his face, and I got good vibes and felt like, okay, well, here we go, and we drove off. And I remember even before we entered the house or got out of the car, I could see the boat, and it was beautiful, glorious, standing in a, a stand of pine trees. It's brilliant white paint job just gleaming at me, standing right there tall in the grass with the mast on top and other accoutrement of the boat lying around on stands. It felt it felt like an electric connection was going on. I knew, I knew just at that moment this boat was the boat. It looked beautiful. It had been professionally repainted and it had been fixed when it got wrecked in a hurricane in the 90s. The boat was actually purchased at auction and it was a mess, completely filled with river mud and destroyed pretty much but not in the eyes of this person and their goal eventually was to fix the boat and then set sail themselves but as time and aging happens to all of us it turned out that it wasn't going to happen for that person and so it was up for sale and now it was in the clutches of my greedy little hands the only blemish the only terrible thing that I could see on this boat was written in large block letters on the back and it was the name. The previous name of the boat was Sierno and I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that correctly but he's a character from a book, Sierno de Bergerac and he had a gigantic nose also spawned that remake Roxanne with Steve Martin and I thought, wow, a play on words, that kind of name on a boat is always a terrible thing unless it's done perfectly correctly. But because Sparrow has this big bowsprit, we thought, well, I guess we'll name it that. And uh, I was able to mind past that one and not worry too much about it. I kind of just ignored the name a little bit. I sc gave a little fake laugh when uh, the explanation was told to me, but... In my mind, I knew that uh, I was going to name this boat something very different, and so I worried not. Uh, but we hopped on the boat, and besides seeing lots of little ants running around and ant carcasses lying around, everything looked very clean. It did have teak decks, but I knew they looked pretty good at that point, but I knew they were coming off. I was already plotting and planning all the modifications that I wanted to do to this boat, but it looked like it had all the wires and things that were needed. It had the boom. It had the mast. It had just about everything you could possibly want, including an Aries wind vane, the exact one that I wanted. It was an older one, and at the time I didn't realize that they were being remade, recently rediscovered in Scandinavia somewhere by a small company. And though I was going to eventually purchase a brand new one, it was kind of nice to have one of these old ones. It's kind of like a motorcycle. You don't buy a fancy first one because you know you're going to wreck it, and I did. Uh, and so I went with this one. But hopping aboard, I looked down below and everything was clean and kept up well. The engine had been run once a week, as per the owner's 
explanation, and it looked good. Everything was clean and put together. It seemed like I would say it was an 80% boat, 80% ready for the ocean, and I was happy with that. And without further ado, and only an hour or so in, we finally made an agreement. I signed the paperwork and agreed to be back before Thanksgiving with a paycheck for the entirety of the boat, and then I would get it out of his boatyard and into the actual boatyard and into the sea. And so I went back to the train and hopped a plane and then ended up in the BVI for my last little stint. And when I'm down in the BVI working at this job in charge of all this sailing and these activities, it's a very intense job. I like to say it's 24 hours a day, on call every day. And that really is what the deal is. And so I'm very focused in that position because you have to be. If you don't give 100%, you essentially can lose track of things and then lots of other things go wrong and the snowball effect and this and that. But to add on to that, I started to receive emails and email after email came in about the boat and this and that. And we even had a small little hurricane that had built up and was headed in that direction. So all of a sudden my worries were spiking and Without too much notice, I started to receive emails that were a little bit angry, a little bit testy, because I hadn't been able to reply quickly enough uh, to these emailed questions about the boat and about the future and about this, that, and the other thing, because I was focusing on work, and that's what I wanted to do. So I finally did write back, and I told the old owner, that it just wasn't going to be as uh, he pictured it as far as communicating back and forth every single day about different aspects of the boat, and it would have to wait until I got back up there. And nicely, he did realize after explanation that, yes, indeed, I was a very busy man at that point, and it would just have to wait. And If anything, I should have seen that as a little bit of a red flag, but Lo and behold, again, this is my first boat. This is my first time that I've ever done this, and I've never noticed or known of this separation anxiety that can happen between man and boat, or woman and boat, I suppose. So, cut to Thanksgiving. I go home and then fly directly down to Florida with check in hand, and I get there, and it seems as though our email debacle had soured the air just a bit. Not too bad, but a little bit. There was some tension, if you will, uh, between the two of us, but the signed papers were there and the check was there now, and I just needed a little bit of backup on my end. So I procured the the assistance of my father, who flew directly down and helped me out and uh, just gave me a little extra confidence to come into every little aspect of what needed to be done, transferring a boat from one person to another and getting it to the boatyard. And I remember the day where we all met up at the boat to have the boat movers come and pick it up and I my naivete at that point long before I've ever worked at a boat yard I didn't even know how it was possible that we would pick this boat up essentially right off the ground and they came in and he was a very jolly fellow and easygoing which was a little bit off from what I was led to believe about yard workers and boat transporters and now knowing what I know now they're some of the greatest people on the earth They're able to move mountains, literally. (laughs) And 
So we get the boat up, and I proceeded to have one of the most frightening experiences I've ever seen. As we as we shot down I-95 at 60 miles an hour, I watched the lumbering hulk of Mighty Sparrow up and down, over bumps, into one lane, under a bridge, under power lines, under signs. It was scary. I know that all the weight is in the keel down by the wheels, but that massive hull just up there in the air, it seemed so ungainly, and I couldn't even watch after a while. But lo and behold, we made it to the boatyard, and it was amazing. Now we were going to turn this thing into a proper sailboat, set the mast, and dump it in the water. I couldn't believe it. The yard hands were there. They brought out the crane and as the boom went way way up into the sky extending up into the 60 foot range from the heights all of a sudden ding a large pin had fallen from the very top of the crane down just a few feet away from the boat and from where all of us were standing and the yard hands just sort of laughed it off you know <laughs> nothing to see here we'll have a good talk about this in the break room i suppose and we shuffled right on to picking up the mast now these pins they are large. They're about eight inches long and probably weigh between six and eight pounds. And had one of those pins hit one of the bystanders, that would have almost assuredly led to death. But I digress. It was just another piece of the puzzle that was coming together. Now, on the boat, the mast in the air, and connections were trying to be made, wires were trying to be run, but there were three cooks up on the kitchen, myself, the old owner, and my father, and we're trying to get this thing to fit, but a lot of these wires won't actually reach and need little extra pieces that we do not have. And the yard hands started to get a little grumbly from the background. It was taking a little too long, and there was a little bit of shouting and this, that, and the other thing. But finally, we got three stays hooked up. And so the yard hand said, well, we're going to undo it now. And looking back on that, I can't believe that was actually the... Uh, the feeling and the service that we were receiving from this boatyard, but hey, to each their own, I suppose. And the mast was still standing when they unhooked the crane, and now it was time to plunk Old Mighty Sparrow into the straps and then into the water. And we got it into the water, and the engine fired right up. There were no leaks coming in. It was an amazing feeling, the three of us standing there, and off to the marina we went. And this is one of the strangest requests that I had from the old owner, and that was that he be the one to helm the boat back into the marina for the first time, the only time, and then hand it over proper to me. Now, normally, this probably wouldn't have been something I would have agreed to, but at this point, I figured the boat was insured. If anything did happen, it would probably be a good thing that I wasn't the one on the helm. And not knowing or thinking too much about his experience behind the helm of a sailboat, I really was just more fascinated by the fact that I'm standing on a boat that now I own and is torn become my home. So I unwielded the helm to the person, and luckily the marina was only about a mile away, and we motored on down the intercoastal waterway and got into the marina, which is tight with a lot of tide, and it was a little bit scary, but with the help of a few fending hands, we were able to pull the boat right into the slip without too much worry, and two lovely dock hands were right there, ready to tie off our lines, and that's when the yelling began. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. 
the main goal of every time you're trying to get into a slip is to get in without hitting anything, tie the boat off as quick as possible, and then you proceed to clean up the lines and tie it up just the way you want it. No, 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 not that day. It wanted to be tied up properly from the get-go, I suppose, but in the end it didn't matter because now I'm standing on this beautiful boat and my father is there who's about to take off and go back to the hotel and previous owner is just sort of checking things around, but I knew soon he would vacate the premises and I would be left alone with Mighty Sparrow, me and my boat. Oh, what a beautiful thing it was. And when I was left alone, I was in a tizzy. I didn't know what to do. There were so many things, so many projects, so many possibilities that I had and could have taken on, but I slowed myself down. I checked my enthusiasm and I sat. I sat at my nav station and I sat in the cockpit. I sat up forward and I sat down below, just feeling the feeling and taking in the absolute wonder that is a person having their first boat. It was such an amazing, amazing time. And in the weeks to follow, my father would finally leave after helping procure lots of lines and halyards and bits and bobs, and Sparrow began to look more and more like a proper sailboat with everything hooked up. There were a few things left at the previous owner's house, which made it so that I was a little bit indentured to him when he had requests to come down and look at the boat or this, that, and the other thing, and... That was probably a mistake on my part. I should have cut the cord, so to speak, a little sooner, a little earlier, but, you know, I was young back then. I was new to the game, if you will. And so the weeks turned into a month, and Sparrow was almost ready to head down on its first trip from Florida down to the British Virgin Islands, and the boat was 98% there. I just needed to put the wind vane on and a few other things, get the dinghy. And so our final meeting, the final cord, would be cut on a day that was still and will always, I'm sure, be in my memory, because as the previous owner brought all of the final things and I wielded them down to the boat on little trolleys and looked at all these new little toys that I had to somehow figure out how to fit onto the boat, he finally proceeded to come on board for his final look over, and I knew I was there was a sense of joy and a sense of dread because somehow I felt that this was going to be a long-winded exchange, but I also knew that as soon as it did finish, this would be the final meeting. And so, I, nodding my head and agreeing with everything that was told to me in this very poignant lecture as previous owner sat at the nav station with his feet up on the counter in the galley, acting very much like an owner. <clears throat> I listened and I nodded and I said okay when I was being told that I needed to make sure I was always wearing a life jacket and never be out at sea without a harness and definitely don't climb the stairs on the mast without a harness and all these rules and regulations that someone else was trying to impose on me and I've never done well with that I've always sort of rebelled when told what to do and how to do things especially when it comes to my own personal life experiences and after soon after the owner took off it was getting to that sunset hour down in Florida a very beautiful time 
And the first and last thing that I did that day was to climb all the way to the very top of the mast without a harness on in a show of protest. And I watched the sunset from up there for a few minutes until I did get a little nervous being up there and climbed right back down. But that was it. When I climbed down on that deck, there was nobody left but me and my boat. And it was an absolute wonderful feeling that I don't think I will ever lose for the rest of my days. And luckily, I've journaled about it. So all these facts that I'm telling you are actual facts. I was able to look them up. I can see the feelings and the torture that was inside of me. And again, I don't mean to be negative about anyone or anything in this podcast, but produce the true story of what it was like to procure the boat. And there are a few things that I have left out because I knew they would send me off into a bit of a tangent, Uh, but that is pretty much the story of how I became the owner of a boat and still to this day am sitting right upon. It has been my home now for six years, and I absolutely love living on the boat, no matter what problems and issues come out of it, no matter how broken she may seem sometimes. She's always my boat, and I love her dearly. Ah, So that's it for this podcast, and uh, I want to say thank you to everybody, especially my Patreon family. And if you do want to support the show, head over to Patreon. The link will be in the description. And if you just want to write to the show, you can just head to sailingintooblivion.com, click on the podcast link, and email me directly from there. I hope you all have a great day, and thanks for listening.